The second part of the prologue of Cleek, the Man of the Forty Faces. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Cleek, the Man of the Forty Faces by Thomas W. Hanshu. Prologue, Part Two. But damn me, sir, the thing's an outrage. I don't mince my words, Mr. Narkom. I say plump and plain that thing's an outrage, a disgrace to the police, an indignity upon the community at large, and for Scotland Yard to permit itself to be defied, bamboozled, mocked at in this appalling fashion by a paltry burglar. Uncle dear, pray don't excite yourself in this manner. I'm quite sure that if Mr. Narkom could prevent the things— Hold your tongue, Ailsa. I will not be interfered with. It's time that somebody spoke out plainly, and let this establishment know what the public has a right to expect of it. What do I pay my rates and taxes for, and devilish high ones they are too, begad, if it's not to maintain law and order and the proper protection of property? and to have the whole blessed country terrorised, the police defied, and people's houses invaded with impunity by a gutter-bred brute of a cracksman, is nothing short of a scandal and a shame. Call this sort of tomfoolery being protected by the police? God bless my soul! One might as well be in charge of a parcel of doddering old women and be done with it. It was an hour and a half after that exciting affair at Dead Man's Corner. The scene was Superintendent Narkom's private room at headquarters. The dramatist personae, Mr. Maverick Narkom himself, Sir Horace Wyvern, and Miss Ailsa Lorne, his niece, a slight, fair-haired, extremely attractive girl of twenty, the only and orphaned daughter of a much-loved sister, who, up till a year ago, had known nothing more exciting in the way of life than that which is to be found in a small village in Suffolk, and falls to the lot of an underpaid vicar's only child. A railway accident had suddenly deprived her of both parents, throwing her wholly upon her own resources, without a penny in the world. Sir Horace had gracefully come to the rescue and given her a home and a refuge, being doubly repaid for it by the affection and care she gave him, and the manner in which she assumed control of a household which hitherto had been left wholly to the attention of servants, Lady Wyvern having long been dead, and her two daughters of that type which devotes itself entirely to the pleasures of society and the demands of the world. A regular pepper-box of a man, testy, short-tempered, exacting, Sir Horace had flown headlong to Superintendent Narkom's office as soon as that gentleman's note, telling him of the vanishing cracksman's latest threat, had been delivered, and on Miss Lorne's advice had withheld all news of it from the members of his household and brought her with him. "'I tell you that Scotland Yard must do something! Must! Must! Must!' stormed he, as Narkom— resenting that stigma upon the institution, puckered up his lips and looked savage. "'That fellow has always kept his word, always in spite of your precious band of muffs. 
and if you let him keep it this time, when there's upwards of forty thousand pounds worth of jewels in the house, it will be nothing less than a national disgrace, and you and your wretched collection of bunglers will be covered with deserved ridicule. Narkom swung round, smarting under these continued taunts, these flings at the efficiency of his prided department, his nostrils dilated, his temper strained to the breaking point. "'Well, he won't keep it this time, I promise you that,' he rapped out sharply. "'Sooner or later every criminal, no matter how clever, meets his Waterloo, and this shall be his. I'll take this affair in hand myself, Sir Horace.' I'll not only send the pick of my men to guard the jewels, but I'll go with them. And if that fellow crosses the threshold of Wyvern House tonight, by the Lord, I'll have him. He will have to be the devil himself to get away from me. Miss Lorne, recollecting himself and bowing apologetically, I ask your pardon for this strong language. My temper got the better of my manners. "'It does not matter, Mr. Narkom, so that you preserve my cousin's wedding-gifts from that appalling man,' she answered, with a gentle inclination of the head, and with a smile that made the superintendent think she must certainly be the most beautiful creature in all the world. It so irradiated her face, and added to the magic of her glorious eyes. "'It does not matter what you say, what you do, so long as you accomplish that.' "'And I will accomplish it. "'As I'm a living man, I will. "'You may go home feeling assured of that. "'Look for my men some time before dusk, Sir Horace. "'I will arrive later. "'They will come in one at a time, "'see that they are admitted by the area door, "'and that, once in, not one of them leaves the house again "'before I put in an appearance. "'I'll look them over when I arrive to be sure that there's no wolf in sheep's clothing amongst them. "'With a fellow like that, a diabolical rascal with a diabolical gift for impersonation, "'one can't be too careful. "'Meantime, it is just as well not to have confided this news to your daughters, "'who naturally would be nervous and upset. "'But I assume that you have taken some one of the servants into your confidence.' "'in order that nobody may pass them "'and enter the house under any pretext whatsoever?' "'No, I have not. "'Miss Lorne advised against it, "'and as I am always guided by her, "'I said nothing of the matter to anybody.' "'Was that wrong, do you think, Mr. Narkom?' "'queried Elsa anxiously. "'I feared that if they knew they might lose their heads, "'and that my cousins, who are intensely nervous "'and highly emotional,' "'might hear of it, and add to our difficulties by becoming hysterical, "'and demanding our attention at a time when we ought to be giving every moment "'to watching for the possible arrival of that man. "'And as he has always lived up to the strict letter of his dreadful promises heretofore, "'I knew that he was not to be expected before nightfall. "'Besides, the jewels are locked up in the safe in Sir Horace's consulting-room, "'and his assistant, Mr. Murfroy, "'has promised not to leave it for one instant before we return.' "'Oh, well, that's all right, then. "'I dare say there is very little likelihood of our man getting in "'whilst you and Sir Horace are here, 
and taking such a risk as stopping in the house until nightfall to begin his operations. Still, it was hardly wise, and I should advise hurrying back as fast as possible and taking at least one servant, the one you feel least likely to lose his head, into your confidence, Sir Horace, and putting him on the watch for my men. Otherwise, keep the matter as quiet as you have done, and look for me about nine o'clock. And rely upon this as a certainty. The vanishing cracksman will never get away with even one of those jewels if he enters that house to-night, and never get out of it unshackled. With that, he suavely bowed his visitors out, and rang up the pick of his men without an instant's delay. Promptly at nine o'clock he arrived, as he had promised, at Wyvern House, and was shown into Sir Horace's consulting-room, where Sir Horace himself and Miss Lorne were awaiting him, and keeping close watch before the locked door of a communicating apartment, in which sat the six men who had preceded him. He went in, and put them all and severally through a rigid examination, pulling their hair and beards, rubbing their faces with a clean handkerchief in quest of any trace of make-up or disguise of any sort, examining their badges and the marks on the handcuffs they carried with them to make sure that they bore the sign which he himself had scratched upon them in the privacy of his own room a couple of hours ago. "'No mistake about this lot,' he announced with a smile. "'Has anybody else entered or attempted to enter the house?' "'Not a soul.' "'replied Miss Lorne. "'I didn't trust anybody to do the watching, Mr. Narkom. "'I watched myself.' "'Good. Where are the jewels? In that safe?' "'No,' replied Sir Horace. "'They are to be exhibited in the picture-gallery "'for the benefit of the guests at the wedding-breakfast to-morrow, "'and as Miss Wyvern wished to superintend the arrangement of them herself, "'and there would be no time for that in the morning, "'she and her sister are in there laying them out at this moment.' "'As I could not prevent that without telling them what we have to dread, "'I did not protest against it. "'But if you think it will be safer to return them to the safe "'after my daughters have gone to bed, Mr. Narkom?' "'Not at all necessary. "'If our man gets in, they're lying there in full view "'like that will prove a tempting bait, "'and, well, he'll find there's a hook behind it. "'I shall be there waiting for him. "'Now go and join the ladies, you and Miss Lorne.' and act as though nothing out of the common was in the wind. My men and I will stop here, and you had better put out the light and lock us in, so that there may be no danger of anybody finding out that we are here. No doubt Miss Wyvern and her sister will go to bed earlier than usual on this particular occasion. Let them do so. Send the servants to bed, too. You and Miss Lorne go to your beds at the same time as the others— or at least let them think that you have done so. Then come down and let us out. To this Sir Horace assented, and, taking Miss Lorne with him, went at once to the picture-gallery and joined his daughters, with whom they remained until eleven o'clock. Promptly at that hour, however, the house was locked up. The bride-elect and her sister went to bed, the servants having already gone to theirs, and stillness settled down over the darkened house. At the end of a dozen minutes, however, it was faintly disturbed by the sound of slippered feet coming along the passage outside the consulting-room, then a key slipped into the lock, 
the door was opened, the light switched on, and Sir Horace and Miss Lorne appeared before the eager watchers. "'Now then, lively, my men, look sharp,' whispered Narkom. "'A man to each window and each staircase, so that nobody may go up or down or in or out without dropping into the arms of one of you. "'Confine your attention to this particular floor, and if you hear anybody coming, lay low until he's within reach, and you can drop on him before he bolts. "'Is this the door of the picture-gallery, Sir Horace?' "'Yes.' "'answered Sir Horace, as he fitted a key to the lock. "'But surely you'll need more men than you have brought, Mr. Narkom, "'if it is your intention to guard every window individually, "'for there are four to this room, see?' "'With that he swung open the door, switched on the electric light, "'and Narkom fairly blinked at the dazzling sight that confronted him. Three long tables, laden with crystal and silver, "'cut glass and jewels, and running the full length of the room, flashed and scintillated under the glare of the electric bulbs which encircled the cornice of the gallery, and clustered in luminous splendour in the crystal and frosted silver of a huge central chandelier, and spread out on the middle one of these, a dazzle of splintered rainbows, a very plain of living light, lay caskets and cases, boxes and trays, containing those royal gifts— of which the newspapers had made so much, and the vanishing cracksmen had sworn to make so few. Mr. Narkom went over and stood beside the glittering mass, resting his hand against the table, and feasting his eyes upon all that opulent splendour. "'God bless my soul! It's superb! It's amazing!' he commented. "'No wonder the fellow is willing to take risks for a prize like this. "'You are a splendid temptation, a gorgeous bait, you beauties. "'But the fish that snaps at you will find that there's a nasty hook underneath, "'in the shape of Maverick Narkom. "'Never mind the many windows, Sir Horace. "'Let him come in by them, if that's his plan. "'I'll never leave these things for one instant between now and the morning.' "'Good night, Miss Lorne. Go to bed and to sleep. You do the same, Sir Horace. My lay is here.' With that he stooped, and, lifting the long drapery which covered the table and swept down in heavy folds to the floor, crept out of sight under it, and let it drop back into place again. "'Switch off the light and go,' he called to them in a low-sunk voice. "'Don't worry yourselves, either of you.' "'Go to bed and to sleep if you can.' "'As if we could,' answered Miss Lorne agitatedly. "'I shan't be able to close an eyelid. "'I'll try, of course, but I know I shall not succeed. "'Come, Uncle, come. "'Oh, do be careful, Mr. Narkom. "'And if that horrible man does come—' "'I'll have him. "'So help me God,' he vowed. "'Switch off the light and shut the door as you go out.' "'This is Forty Faces Waterloo at last.' And in another moment the light snicked out, the door closed, and he was alone in the silent room. For ten or a dozen minutes not even the bare suggestion of a noise disturbed the absolute stillness. Then, of a sudden, 
his trained ear caught a faint sound that made him suck in his breath and rise on his elbow, the better to listen. A sound which came not without the house, but from within, from the dark hall where he had stationed his men, to be exact. As he listened, he was conscious that some living creature had approached the door, touched the handle, and by the swift, low rustle and the sound of hard breathing, that it had been pounced upon and seized. He scrambled out from beneath the table, snicked on the light, whirled open the door, and was in time to hear the irritable voice of Sir Horace say testily, "'Don't make an ass of yourself by your overzealousness. I've only come down to have a word with Mr. Narkom.' and to see him standing on the threshold, grotesque in a baggy suit of striped pyjamas, with one wrist enclosed as in a steel band by the gripped fingers of Petrie. "'Why didn't you say it was you, sir?' exclaimed that crestfallen individual, as the flashing light made manifest his mistake. "'When I heard you first and see you come up out of that back passage, I made sure it was him.' "'and if you'd have struggled, I'd have bashed your head as sure as aches. "'Thank you for nothing,' he responded testily. "'You might have remembered, however, "'that the man's first got to get into the place "'before he can come downstairs. "'Mr. Narkom,' turning to the superintendent, "'I was just getting into bed "'when I thought of something I'd neglected to tell you, "'and as my niece is sitting in her room with the door open, "'and I wasn't anxious to parade myself before her in my night-clothes, "'I came down by the back staircase. "'I don't know how in the world I came to overlook it, "'but I think you ought to know that there's a way of getting into the picture-gallery "'without using either the windows or the stairs, "'and that way ought to be both searched and guarded. "'Where is it? What is it? Why in the world didn't you tell me in the first place?' "'exclaimed Narkom irritably "'as he glanced round the place searchingly. "'Is it a panel, a secret door, or what? "'This is an old house, "'and old houses are sometimes a very nest of such things. "'Happily this one isn't. "'It's a modern innovation, "'not an ancient relic that offers the means of entrance in this case. "'A Yankee occupied this house before I bought it from him. "'One of those blessed shivery individuals his country breeds.' "'who can't stand a breath of cold air indoors "'after the passing of the autumn. "'The wretched man put one of those wretched American inflictions, "'a hot-air furnace, in the cellar, "'with huge pipes running to every room in the house, "'great tin monstrosities bigger round than a man's body, "'ending in openings in the wall "'with what they call registers to let the heat in, "'or shut it out as they please.' "'I didn't have the wretched contrivance removed "'or those blessed registers plastered up. "'I simply had them papered over when the rooms were done up. "'There's one over there near that settee. "'And if a man got into this house, "'he could get into that furnace thing "'and hide in one of those flues "'until he got ready to crawl up it as easily as not. "'It struck me that perhaps it would be as well for you to examine that furnace and those flues before matters go any further.' "'Of course it would. Great Scott! Sir Horace, why didn't you think to tell me of this thing before?' said Narkom excitedly. "'The fellow may be in it at this minute. Come, show me the wretched thing.' "'It's below, in the cellar. We shall have to go down the kitchen stairs, and I haven't a light.' "'Here's one,' said Petrie. 
unhitching a bull's-eye from his belt and putting it into Narkom's hand. "'Better go with Sir Horace at once, sir. Leave the door of the gallery open and the light on. Fish and me will stand guard over the stuff till you come back, so in case the man is in one of them flues and tries to bolt out at this end, we can nab him before he can get to the windows.' "'A good idea,' commented Narkom. "'Come on, Sir Horace. Is this the way?' "'Yes, but you'll have to tread carefully, and mind you don't fall over anything. A good deal of my paraphernalia, bottles, retorts, and the like, is stored in the little recess at the foot of the staircase, and my assistant is careless and leaves things lying about.' Evidently the caution was necessary, for a minute or so after they had passed on and disappeared behind the door leading to the kitchen stairway, Petri and his colleagues heard a sound as of something being overturned and smashed, and laughed softly to themselves. Evidently, too, the danger of the furnace had been grossly exaggerated by Sir Horace, for when, a few minutes later, the door opened and closed, and Narkom's men, glancing toward it, saw the figure of their chief reappear, it was plain that he was in no good temper since his features were knotted up into a scowl, and he swore audibly as he snapped the shutter over the bull's-eye and handed it back to Petrie. "'Nothing worth looking into, Superintendent?' "'No, not a thing,' he replied. "'The silly old josser! Pulling me down there amongst the coals and rubbish for an insane idea like that! Why, the flues wouldn't admit the passage of a child!' and even then there's a bend, an abrupt elbow, that nothing but a cat could crawl up. And that's a man who's an authority on the human brain. I sent the old silly back to bed by the way he came, and if— There he stopped, stopped short, and sucked in his breath with a sharp, wheezing sound. For, of a sudden, a swift, pattering footfall, and a glimmer of moving light had sprung into being, and drawn his eyes upward— and there, overhead, was Miss Lorne coming down the stairs from the upper floor in a state of nervous excitement, and with a bedroom candle in her shaking hand. A loose gown flung on over her nightdress, and her hair streaming over her shoulders in glorious disarray. He stood and looked at her with ever-quickening breath, with ever-widening eyes, as though the beauty of her had wakened some dormant sense, whose existence he had never suspected as though, until now, he had never known how fair it was possible for a woman to be, how fair, how lovable, how much to be desired. And whilst he was so looking, she reached the foot of the staircase, and came pantingly toward him. "'Oh, Mr. Narkom, what was it, that noise I heard?' she said, in a tone of deepest agitation. "'It sounded like a struggle.' "'like the noise of something breaking, "'and I dressed as hastily as I could and came down. "'Did he come? Has he been here? Have you caught him? "'Oh, why don't you answer me instead of staring at me like this? "'Can't you see how nervous, how frightened I am? "'Dear heaven, will no one tell me what has happened?' "'Nothing has happened, miss,' answered Petrie, "'catching her eye as she flashed round on him. "'You'd better go back to bed. "'Nobody's been here but Sir Horace.' "'The noise you heard was me a-grabbing of him, "'and he and Mr. Narkom a-tumbling over something "'as they went down to look at the furnace.' "'Furnace? What furnace? "'What are you talking about?' "'She cried agitatedly. 
"'What do you mean by saying that Sir Horace came down?' "'Only what the superintendent himself will tell you, miss, if you ask him. Sir Horace came downstairs in his pyjamas a few minutes ago, to say as he'd recollected about the flues of the furnace in the cellar being big enough to hold a man. And then him and Mr. Narkom went below to have a look at it. She gave a sharp and sudden cry, and her face went as pale as a dead face. "'Sir Horace came down,' she repeated, moving back a step, and leaning heavily against the banister. "'Sir Horace came down to look at the furnace. We have no furnace.' "'What?' "'We have no furnace, I tell you. And Sir Horace did not come down. He is up there still. I know.' "'I know, I tell you, because I feared for his safety, "'and when he went to his room, I locked him in.' "'Superintendent!' "'The word was voiced by every man present, "'and six pairs of eyes turned toward Narkom "'with a look of despairing comprehension. "'Get to the cellar! Head the man off! "'It's he, the cracksman!' he shouted out. "'Find him! Get him! Nab him if you have to turn the house upside down!' They needed no second bidding, for each man grasped the situation instantly, and in a twinkling there was a veritable pandemonium. Shouting and scrambling like a band of madmen, they lurched to the door, whirled it open, and went flying down the staircase to the kitchen, and so to a discovery which none might have foreseen. For almost as they entered, they saw lying on the floor a suit of striped pyjamas and close to it, gagged, bound, helpless, trussed up like a goose that was ready for the oven, jives on his wrists, jives on his ankles, their chief, their superintendent, Mr. Maverick Narkom, in a state of collapse, and with all his outer clothing gone. "'After him! After that devil! And a thousand pounds to the man that gets him!' he managed to gasp as they rushed to him and ripped loose the gag. "'He was here when we came. He has been in the house for hours. Get him! Get him! Get him!' They surged from the room and up the stairs like a pack of stampeded animals. They raced through the hall and bore down on the picture gallery in a body, and, whirling open the now-closed door, went tumbling headlong in. The light was still burning. At the far end of the room a window was wide open, and the curtains of it fluttered in the wind. A collection of empty cases and caskets lay on the middle table, but man and jewels were alike gone. Once again the vanishing cracksman had lived up to his promise, up to his reputation, up to the very letter of his name and for all Mr. Maverick Narkom's care and shrewdness, forty faces had turned the trick, and Scotland Yard was done. End of the second part of the prologue